Hi, this is Areej Noor, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Wrap, a weekly radio show weaving conversations about culture, politics, literature, art and music into a weekly mix. Broadcast live on Triple R from Kulin Nations land in Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Dr. Victor Sojo Monzon is a lecturer and research fellow in leadership at the University of Melbourne. He works in several interdisciplinary leadership, diversity management and equity research projects and has written a piece on uh, University of Melbourne's publication titled Pursuit and the piece is called The Toxic Spread of COVID-19 Racism. Thank you for joining me this morning. Uh, Thank you for having me. Just to kind of start this conversation, I want to ask you how you think COVID-19 has become racialized in Australia. How has the, um, how has the racialization developed in Australia? I mean, there are many different ways in which this happened, right? Um, the first one is the fact that we, I mean, there have always been racial undertones in the public discourse in Australia. Um, you know, the racism against many minority groups has been part of the political discourse and the community discourse for a long time. And then any situation that could create anxiety in the community could easily exacerbate those feelings. Um, so when you have politicians who are in the middle of a crisis are trying to find somebody to blame for the crisis, mm-hmm. um, it is easy for other members of the community to also engage in the same kind of behavior. And obviously, a lot of people are very anxious. A lot of people are concerned about their own, uh, protecting their own lives and protecting the, the economy of the country. And in such a situation, it is very easy for us to start looking for ways to manage that anxiety. And sometimes people do it in a pretty um, constructive way. Um, and some other people will do it in a destructive way, sometimes by attacking those that we perceive to be the um, they're responsible for um, the current crisis. Mm. And in times of crisis, a lot of this kind of racism and intolerance almost becomes justified um, because the world is in a state of panic and there's almost a green light from leadership um, when some of the rhetoric is this way and um, then the behaviours correspond with the rhetoric. That is correct, and I think in, in in a way we have seen that in, in well, I mean, it's interesting. We have we have seen that in Australia, but we have seen that in many other countries. Okay, so we have seen Donald Trump calling the virus the China virus. Um, we have seen how people, black people in China in particular, have been um, physically abused and evicted from their houses. Even Australians, actually, in India, have been you know the Australian tourists in India have been mistreated because they are seen as virus spreaders, right? Um, so it is very easy in the current situation for even um, a, 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 even if you struggle, right, trying to speak in public as a politician and you say something that could be conceived as blaming a specific group that could trigger the escalation of abuse towards those groups. So it, it is very important for uh, public figures to be very careful with their language in the current situation. So things are tense and we live in this multicultural society, like you said, that has lots of um, racialized undertones starting from, you know, the inception of this, this state. Um, mm-hmm. So how should leaders address our country 
the country when we're in this state of crisis so as to ensure that, you know, people are not going to be verbally and physically abused in the street? Yeah, that's a great question. There are many things that we could do. I think um, because we do know that anxiety is a, is a trigger of all kinds of abuse, it is super important for, again, political figures and leaders in general to make a, a, an extra effort to be clear um, when they are speaking to the community, to inform the community about the current situation, why is it that we're being asked to make such an extreme set of... of concessions and to, um, yeah, do exactly what most people are doing right now, which is, you know, working from home or sacrificing our own salaries and so on. So it is super important that politicians make an extra effort to explain to us why is it that we're doing this, what are going to be the benefits of what we're doing right now. Um, so that's one component of it, right? The other component is basically sending the right message around the importance of community cohesion in the current situation. So the, the only enemy here to fight is the, is the coronavirus, okay? And all of our efforts should be concentrated on doing that and in showing kindness and consideration and respect to people in our own community. Remember, most likely we're going to go into, into a recession and a depression after this. And so the last thing that a country like Australia needs is having the community at each other's throat uh, based on, on, racial, um, on racial groups. Mm. Um, I think it's also very important for the leaders in, in the business sector or in any organization, actually, to talk about this issue with their employees, um, talk about their own views about racial abuse and how appalling they perceive this to be, and also be able to offer support to people who might be experiencing that kind of abuse in the community. Remember, some of the abusers could be, you know, the, the clients or the employees um, or, or any other stakeholder of any organization. So it's, it's, not, um, it's not a terrible idea for leaders to be able to talk about this with their employees as a way to, to well, to, to create some kind of understanding of what's really going on in the community. Mm. And of course, I think anybody in the Australian community could actually be an active bystander when they see abuse. So if you see a situation where somebody's being racially abused and you don't feel that your own safety is at risk, um, it is okay for you to intervene, okay? And, and, and actually, you don't have to be quite overt in your intervention. You could just ask, innocent questions to people like, do you think that language is helpful and, and would you like somebody to talk to you in that way or to a relative of yours? Um, obviously, if you see that somebody is being attacked, you know, physically attacked, um, the best thing that you could do is to protect yourself and call the authorities for them to intervene. Mm -hmm. And obviously, it is possible for you to also offer support to somebody who's being abused. If you feel that you don't want to intervene during the event, um, you could also just reach out to people who've been abused, you know, and make them, um, you know, tell them that you support them and that you think that what happened to them was appalling. I just wonder, because, you know, given the context of Australia and some of these countries around the world when it comes to, um, you know, racial abuse, racial violence, the establishment of, of countries like Australia and other um, colonies, yeah. I wonder how possible is it for us to, um, you know, find leadership that ensures that hopefully people learn about these differences and don't act um, based on race. Like, I just wonder, you know, 
Yeah. What what can actually be done while also you know re- like addressing the past <laughs> and acknowledging yeah, what's happened I mean, and then moving forward? That's a beautiful question. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, in other countries they have done many things, right? So some people have done and truth and reconciliation and commissions, right, mm-hmm. where they actually gather evidence about the harm that has been caused to. Um, the native, you know, people of the communities, right? So this happened in Canada, it happened all, all the way in South America, and they have done some of them in Africa too. And the idea of these commissions is to actually gather evidence that you could use to educate the community. I think part of the issue that we have in Australia is the, is the lack of understanding of many members of our community of the past of the country, okay, so of how... Well, yeah, how we came, you know, a colony and the impact that that had on on our on on our Aboriginal people, on, on the Aboriginal people of Australia. So they are not ours. Mm. Um, so I think that that could be a good start, right? So re- literally getting the evidence and then using it to educate the community about our history. Um, I think it's, it's definitely a first step. Mm. But again, I think part of the issue here is when you have on a daily basis, politicians who engage in racial uh, dog whistling. Um, that means that it is very hard for you to actually heal the community um, when instead of getting messages of, of conciliation, of respect, and of inclusion from very important figures in our community, um, you get these divisive messages um, on, on, almost on a daily basis, really. There's, I think, an anxiety. Um, I was speaking with some friends and family in the last um, couple of weeks and there's an anxiety of what you mentioned earlier of there being this um, enormous economic crisis that will yeah. likely unfold in, in the next few months and, and even years. And often we find, and history tells us, that within economic crises, um, the people who are the most vulnerable pre continue you know the the vulnerability deepens right and so I think there's a lot of people who are in these vulnerable or marginalized situations who are are quite terrified of what the future might be if their current is um, as difficult as it is what what can we do to um, try and reverse that and hopefully have that not happen in the future yeah that's a great question I mean I think one of the interesting things that we have seen globally is that countries that have been able to manage this this crisis better are those that have much better um, social services, okay, that are available to all members of the community. Now, it's not a surprise that Germany in, in Europe has been so successful at doing this. And see, so my feeling would be, first of all, that in, in you know going going forward, making sure that we don't continue to allow for many members of our community to fall through the cracks of the of the social safety network that we have been trying to create in this country for a very long time, um, would be an important first step. Um, and, and that's because it actually is easier to recover the economy of the country when we have a, a large contingent of people who are ready to work, who are ready to be productive. And basically, the marginalization of specific groups in our community, if you only want to think about the economic argument for this, obviously there is a very important moral argument to do it, but if you only want to focus on the economic argument, making sure that we don't have marginalized groups in our community is an effective way to have the recovery mm-hmm. of the country uh, going forward. And, and, and again, I think um, part of the issue here is making sure that the people who are developing social policy in the middle of an economic crisis 
actually have a good understanding of what it is uh, like to live as a poor person, you know, as somebody who's been marginalized. Because I feel that many of the issues that we have is because we also have politicians who have never experienced poverty, who have never seen, you know, lived um, the personal experience of, of being uh, disenfranchised. And that means that it's very hard for them to actually start thinking about these conditions and develop policy, both social and economic policy, that takes care of the needs of people who have been historically um, marginalized. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for your insights. I've been thinking about these, you know, ideas and topics for a little while, and it's really great to get the economic and the social perspective because sometimes they just don't merge and we get one or the other. Um, so I'm very uh, thankful yeah. for your insights. Oh, no, my pleasure. Anytime. Thank you. Dr. Victor Soho Monzon is a lecturer and research fellow in leadership and um, at the University of Melbourne. He works in several interdisciplinary leadership, diversity management and equity research projects and has written a piece on pursuit called The Toxic Spread of COVID-19 Racism. It is very, very thoughtful and one that I would highly recommend any one of you to read, particularly if you are feeling a little bit anxious um, the way that I am at the moment. Claire G. Coleman is a Noongar woman whose family belonged to the south coast of Western Australia since long before history started being recorded. She writes fiction, essays and poetry and won a Black and Right Indigenous Writing Fellowship for her novel Terra Nullius. She's uh, just published an essay called COVID and Colonialism as part of the Koori Heritage Trust's new digital platform, KHT Voices. Claire, it's great to have you on the show today. Hi, how are you? Good, thanks. Um, we've got a few things to cover this morning, but I want to start with this essay that you've written. You end it with, um, it all feels painfully familiar to anybody who knows anything about Indigenous history. History repeats itself if we don't prevent it. Um, what is this history that you're speaking of as it relates to COVID-19? Well, during the... Um, invasion, what, some, what most Australians call the settlement of Australia, but I'll call it the invasion. During the invasion, uh, when white people went to certain places, they discovered that there was no Indigenous population alive there, but there was lots of evidence that there had been. And what that essentially was, was um, smallpox, moving ahead of the colonisers and thousands of people dying. We don't know how many. It's impossible to know how many, but many thousands of people dying from smallpox before... Um, colonized appeared and that's kind of the experience across the world when colonizers have arrived somewhere such as in um, in North America when smallpox wiped out like countless numbers of people there as well so it's not unusual this idea that um, essentially people people's freedom of movement causes a mass attack of disease somewhere yeah. And in your essay, you um, kind of paint this picture of messengers moving and walking to communities to let them know of what's going on and, and you know, also carry, carrying these illnesses and diseases and, and that really beginning to spread. How have you juxtaposed that with um, what what's happening at the moment? Well, um, COVID-19, when it was first... Um, spreading across the world, it was travelling at the speed of air travel, mm. which is, if you think about it that way, um, it, 
it can a disease that has a only a fourteen day incubation period, um, and then has obvious symptoms when people are sick, would be quite unlikely becoming a pandemic when the average time to travel across the world was many, many weeks. Mm-hmm. And you had time to, to get ill and get better or you know, if a if a, a you know, for example, if Cook's vessel um which is this history of today as well. If Cook's vessel had um, a disease like COVID nineteen on the on the boat, um, all the crew who were going to um, die from it would be dead, and all that survived it would have survived it by the time it actually got to Australia. So, COVID nineteen requires air travel to be dangerous. Yeah. And countries are closed. The earliest someone closed the borders to air travel, the better they've coped with this um, disease. Yeah. You're right, because it, it is much faster. You can travel fa- faster than the length yes. of the disease, right, of the virus. Yes, that's right. You've also... Me, no, no, go on. It, it reminds a bit of, um, of zombie apocalypse scenarios in... in um, sort of viral zombie movies where the, the reason the disease spreads fast is because people catch it on and get on planes and it, it's actually it amuses me that um, that it's the parallels of some recent zombie movies and COVID-19 are so strong the idea that if you get um, if people get sick and they've got a and it's um, kind of a relatively short incubation period you know, yeah the, the disease would be extinct without planes and that's a frightening frightening thought yeah, and as someone who writes speculative fiction, you know, I'm sitting in this studio um, and there's nobody else in the building. It's also really, really dark outside um, and the lights are quite dim in here. Is this period of time um, for someone you, like yourself who writes speculative fiction, what, what, what do you experience creatively in this type of moment in the world? Well, what's funny is, immediately is it, it reminds me of that saying that truth is stranger than fiction. Yeah. Because I don't think any, um, well, certainly it, it's rare for speculative fiction authors even to think of the concept of the world shutting down all of its industry in fear of a virus. Right. Uh, it's a very strange scenario. I mean, it's you kind of... The COVID isolation was the only solution we had to the disease, almost certainly. Uh, but it's such a strange concept that I wouldn't have thought of. There's been similar situations in fiction before, but no, but I've never heard of... I can't think of anyone who actually had the concept of shutting down everything and telling everyone to stay home um, to ensure that a disease wouldn't spread. So it's... Um, it's of course a fertile time because once you've once you see how our society's reacted to this problem, you, you realise that our reactions are a lot more bizarre than you'd think as well. Yeah, and I guess in the moment of fear um, and the unknown, particularly you know six eight weeks ago, where people really had absolutely no clue. Um, what was going on and there was a lot of panic and I remember that period in early March or mid-March was totally almost unbelievable because there were people yeah. still on the fence and saying, no, it's it's fine, it's not really a thing and then there were people who were all the way on the other end of the spectrum um, who were really responding to this panic and it was it yeah. felt very like <laughs> apocalyptic. It still feels apocalyptic. Yeah. It's, it's uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky. I've got a, a house um, and 
Uh, it's, it's, it, but still, it is a kind of apocalyptic scenario because even um, my, about a month ago when I was heading to my house, um, and haven't, I haven't really left the house much since, the, um, I remember going to a, a shopping centre um, to get some groceries and the food hall had all the chairs removed. Yeah. Uh, and that's a, that's, that itself was such a bizarre thing because it was a cra- normally very, very crowded food hall and completely empty with no chairs. Mm. And so it feels like, it kind of feels like a, um, a post-apocalyptic scenario sometimes when you go outside the streets. Like, it feels like um, uh, the um, like I Am Legend or The Amigo, yeah. you know, being the last person alive. It's such a strange, strange yeah. feeling right now. Because there's infrastructure and there's, you know, everything is still the same, but there's just no people. Yeah. Yeah. It's very bizarre. In your essay, you um, mentioned that, you know, people who carry this virus and transport this virus around the world are people of of some degree of privilege, but those who will ultimately and who are ultimately um, being victimised by it and, and are getting sick and are being impacted by it are, are not necessarily the people who, who carry it. Yes. Well, I, I think about the um, situation, for example, in Melbourne. I'd have it around the rest of Australia as well, but certainly there's a, there was a, a, a cluster in Melbourne caused by people who were wealthy enough to go to um, Aspen in the USA for a basically a skiing party and then came back carrying the disease. So it's it's that that sort of thing is what, what inspired me to think this way. But if but from almost all points of view, majority of people around the world who travel are doing so for pleasure. Mm. Who for, that is air travel. There are people who do air travel for um for work. But they're also generally from from affluent nations. It's very rare for somebody from a poor nation or from a poor background to travel. So it's, it's to me, it's quite important to realise that it is definitely the um, actual notion of travelling for fun that has caused this disease to spread as quickly as it has. Mm. And I'm reminded of the fact that the Northern Territory of all places in Australia has um, been most successful in controlling it, but that's because they closed their border to interstate travel. Because every case that came into the Northern Territory was someone travelling from interstate bringing the disease. They, had, they haven't had, as far as I'm aware, any community, community transmission yet. Mm. So it's obviously a, a disease of affluent leisure travel. Yeah. And even if there is community transmission, it's likely that whoever were to catch that would catch that from someone of who, who had been out travelling, right? Yeah. Like in the United States, the people who are being hit... The hardest are the poor, like poor people, so yes. black people, Latino people, and First Nations people, um, and that is within the context of the healthcare system and poverty. Um, but they, but like you said, they're not the people who went out and and actually, it's not the same demographic that is no. not surviving this virus, and we can see um, that play out in the United States in this grand scale. Um, yeah, and the most shocking thing to me is the obvious fact that. Um, People who have suffered the most economically are people from working class mm. backgrounds, such as you know people who generally people in Australia who work in hospitality yeah. um, have, have less money. So the people who've got the most economic impact are the people who work in jobs where they um, which have been most strongly affected by the by the um, the economic changes required to survive this. So again, it's the it's not the people who 
um, carried the disease around the world on planes that are that are being most impacted in any ways. Everyone else. Mm. I've been thinking a lot about um, archives and archiving the last couple of years and what it means for different communities to archive moments in history as they relate specifically to themselves to disrupt this dominant narrative about history. It feels like the Koori Heritage Trust is kind of doing this with the KHT voices. Um, Do you feel that that is an important process to start? Well, it's, uh, I suppose... um if you consider the idea that history is written by the victors, mm. in, if you consider that idea that only the um, people who've survived something or who won a war get to write their opinion of it, in a way, actually producing um, an archive or producing work about what's going on is in a way a, a way to gain victory, a way to um, to strengthen communities and to establish that with the fact that we are not going to be victims of this. Mm-hmm. So, in a, so in a way, it's it's kind of um, unhinging the whole idea of how history is recorded if people who are suffering are the ones that record their own history. And I think recording our own history is very important to anyone from a minority yeah. or disadvantaged background. Yeah. Um- Claire, it has just been announced, hold off the press, um, that you are one of the 2020 Malcolm Robertson Writers Program participants. I've just been on the Malthouse Theatre website and it says um, that you will be writing Black Betty at the end of the world. Tell me a little bit about what's going on here. Well, it's actually really um, interesting because um, I... I met someone, I met um, the artistic director, no, sorry, not the artistic director, the new works manager at Moldhouse Theatre at, at a mutual friend's birthday party, and we got talking about theatre, and I, I said I wanted to write a play one day, and so we set up a meeting and we had a chat, and I told him my idea um, to write something about a bunch of disparate people surviving an apocalyptic spasm. And the funny thing was that I came up the, uh, that we started the meetings um, basically late last year, which is before the COVID crisis mm. even happened. <laughs> like, I, I did not expect this, um, I, this to happen. So I was writing something about um, essentially what's happening now. And, <laughs> and it's, yeah, I, I've, been, I've actually been writing this play for well over a month now because in order to because I was an unknown playwright they um, Malthouse understandably wanted to see a writing sample of theatre writing so I, I learned to write theatre and started writing it and that, so I've been writing it during this crisis already which is completely insane especially you considering that I came up with the idea well before it it's almost it's almost unbelievable and I've, I've listened to a few podcasts and had a few conversations with friends who say that they're making most sense of this crisis by watching and reading science fiction, speculative fiction, post-apocalyptic, you know, movies and books and, you know, even looking at the survival mechanisms that these writers have um, put into their characters and really starting to consider how, you know, we can get past this. So it's almost a little bit too perfect that you are putting this together at the moment. It's it's a bit, it's a bit too perfect, yeah. and I'll, and also like a couple of weeks ago, for a just at random, I sat down and I did a an un, unplanned marathon of zombie movies. <laughs> I started watching zombie movies, 
and I just kept going and going and going and going for out for many many hours. And I do, and of course I love zombie movies, but the idea of watching them when um, really what we're going through is it has it certainly has parallels in the zombie film genre. It's, it's kind of a slightly crazy behaviour, but I think it's understandable to try and use art or use the art to consume to make sense of what's going on around you anyway. That's one of the things art is for. Absolutely. And really understanding, particularly um, in different parts of the world, how the this you know crisis is actually being handled. For a lot of people, there isn't much information out there. People don't actually know what's going on. And in order to feed that void and to feel a little bit comforted and you know, work out maybe I can do this or I can do that. Art is definitely one of the um, the main sources of that. It's just unfortunate that the arts industry is has kind of been thrown under the bus um, in, yeah, at sad. the moment. It is sad that um, of all the industries, arts was one of the industries to suffer first and that mm. the big arts institutions were the first thing to be forcibly closed. Um, but as I say, they're talking about reversing the story. I'm doing... Unlocking restrictions in reverse order, which means arts will be the last thing to reopen, and we're the only industry that hasn't had a massive financial bailout package. So it's a bit like this. There should have been some sort of package for freelance artists mm. so that we can stop suffering. I personally have lost thousands of dollars worth of public appearances. Uh, just with stuff I'd already booked, there's probably things I would have been booked for later in the year that yeah. I've already cancelled as well yeah. before I could before you even know um, even be booked. Yeah, yeah. absolutely, um, Claire. It has been such a joy to chat with you. Thank you so much for the chat and also for writing this incredibly insightful piece. We didn't cover. Um, everything that you've written in it and that's because I want people to jump on the Koori Heritage Trust website and actually have a read. There's a second essay um, by artist Glenda Nichols who talks about her experience during COVID-19 lockdown including missing her usual social activities and social contact um, and how she is trying to find time to focus on creative work and there will continue to be um, different First Nations uh, writers who um, contribute to this you know, archive. Yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be a great um, collection of stories, I think, Yeah. over time. Claire, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Claire G. Coleman is a Noongar woman whose family belonged to the south coast of Western Australia. She writes fiction, essays and poetry and won a Black and White Indigenous Writing Fellowship for her novel Terra Nullius. And she's also um, one of the 2020 Malcolm Robertson uh, writers program participants at the Malt House and is putting together a play titled Black Betty at the End of the World. You can jump on the Koori Heritage Trust website uh, and check out her essay titled COVID and Colonialism. You're in Triple R. Hey, a big thanks to all of my gorgeous guests today. Big Thanks to Dr. Victor Soyo Monzon, who's a lecturer and research fellow in leadership at the University of Melbourne, who works in several interdisciplinary leadership, diversity, management and equity research projects, and has written a piece um, on pursuit publication out of the University of Melbourne called The Toxic Spread of COVID-19 Racism. And I had a really insightful conversation with him about what happens post-COVID-19 when it comes to social and structural inequality in Australia. Uh, Also a big, big thanks to Claire G. Coleman and also a big congratulations to Claire who has um, 
is a one of the 2020 Malcolm Robertson Writers Program participants um, and is writing Black Betty at the end of the world um, for Malthouse. So hopefully that's a play that we will all be able to see very, very soon. Claire is a Noongar woman whose family belonged to the south coast of Western Australia. She writes fiction, essays, um, and poetry and won a Black and White Indigenous Writing Fellowship for her novel Terra Nullius. But we were chatting about a piece that she wrote for um, KHT Voices, which is the Koori Heritage Trust Voices uh, platform. It was titled COVID and Colonialism and it is incredibly insightful. I would jump on the Koori Heritage Trust website um, to have a read of that. I have had so much fun hanging out with you and I will be handing over in just a moment to Jackie Baker who will take you through to the next through the next hour. My name is Areej. It has been so much fun hanging out with you. I might give you the end of this Songhoi Blues track, Kamali Nord, because I think you deserve it. Um, but Jackie Baker will take you through to the afternoon. Be safe. I will see you next week. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Wrap, a weekly radio show weaving conversations about culture, politics, literature, art and music into a weekly mix. Broadcast live on Triple R from Kulin Nation's land in Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and if you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.